Hello, and welcome to Ed Infinitum, the podcast that makes school the subject of study. I'm your host, David Nuremberg. This is Season 3, Episode 6, What Do You Pledge? If you attend a public K-12 school in the United States, it's very likely that the beginning of your day sounds a little something like this. I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and to the republic for which it stands, one nation, under God, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. Although no federal law compels it, 45 out of 50 states have laws requiring schools to include a regular recitation of the Pledge of Allegiance. The pledge also remains something of a flashpoint. Take, for example, a case in February 2019 of a sixth grader in Lakeland, Florida, being arrested for refusing to recite the pledge on the grounds that he felt the American flag symbolized discrimination against black people. This apparently led to a verbal altercation with his substitute teacher, who apparently told him to, quote, go back to Africa, unquote. And all of this escalated into his eventual arrest and his family's subsequent lawsuit. How did we get here? How did the Pledge of Allegiance end up being such an integral part of the routines of public school, and how and why did it inspire, and does it continue to inspire, such strong reactions for and against its use? First, we should probably delve into the history of the Pledge itself, which starts with a man named George Thatcher Balch, a soldier from Maine who earned a reputation for being something of a bean counter extraordinaire during the mid-1800s. During the Civil War, he was put in charge of keeping track of explosive ordnance, which sounds like a pretty important thing for the Army to keep track of. And after the war, he worked as an auditor for the Erie Railway Company, where he apparently found them about a million dollars worth of forgotten properties that had somehow gotten lost in the shuffle of bookkeeping. Seriously? And then audited the street paving contracts for New York City, which would seem to rate in my book as just above organizing toothpick collections for the most boring job in existence. But apparently, Balch exposed a lot of fraud among contractors. Maybe this explains why there are so many potholes in your city? Anyway, Balch's legendary bean-counting abilities eventually got him a job at that most bean-county of organizations, the New York City Board of Education. It was here, in the 1890s, that Balch began to become obsessed with what he saw as the problem of large numbers of foreign-born students. And as a means of trying to promote what he thought of as a unifying American identity, instituted a ritual of having students salute the American flag while speaking the following words, I give my heart and my hand into my country. One country, one language, one flag. Now, leave aside the fact that the United States doesn't have and never has had an official national language, English or otherwise, for more details, see Season 2, Episode 3. Let's keep going. I guess Balch really got into this promoting patriotism thing maybe a little too much, because he died five years into this initiative of, and this is seriously what it lists on his death certificate, apoplexy, as in getting so upset you have a heart attack. While some schools, presumably in a slightly more chill way, adopted Balch's ritual, and some influential nationalist organizations like the Daughters of the American Revolution and the Grand Army of the Republic took it up as well, the pledge may well have faded into obscurity if not for the work of a Baptist minister named Francis Bellamy. The year was 1892, and before we go further, I know Massachusetts Senator Elizabeth Warren took some flack during her 2020 presidential primary one for claiming to be both socialist and capitalist at the same time, but Bellamy somehow pulled that off. He proudly identified as a Christian socialist, yet also managed to spearhead a campaign to mount an American flag on top of every school in the nation, flags that, incidentally, were sold by the magazine he worked for, The Youth Companion. 
We need to talk about this magazine, too. The Youth's Companion was first published in 1827 by a man from Boston named Perry Mason. And yes, actually, there is a connection to the future fictional lawyer by that same name. Author Ari Stanley Gardner wound up choosing that name specifically because of his fondness for that magazine. The original Perry Mason was pretty religious. I suppose we probably shouldn't call him a zealot. But his goal in founding the magazine was, and I quote, was to encourage virtue and piety and warn against the ways of transgression among children, unquote. By the end of the century, some slightly less religious and more entrepreneurial publishers took over and turned the Youth Companion into an entertainment magazine. Think of it sort of as highlights for the 1890s. And eventually, they expanded its target audience beyond children to include adults as well, publishing the work of writers no less famous and influential as Harriet Beecher Stowe, Mark Twain, Emily Dickinson, Booker T. Washington, and Jack London. In later years, Winston Flippin Churchill had an essay published in it. The Youth Companion also, to the best of my knowledge, published the first medical advice column in America. The Youth Companion's circulation increased during this time from 5,000 to about half a million, which back then was pretty darned impressive. But for the purposes of our story, Bellamy, remember him? And his co-worker, James Upham, who happened to be the publisher's nephew, furthered their flag-selling money-making scheme by calling for an official ritual for schools to follow, and promoted it at a national convention of school superintendents, as well as at the Chicago World's Fair. They considered using Balch's pledge, but Bellamy found it to be, and I quote, too juvenile and lacking in dignity, unquote. So instead, Bellamy rewrote it as follows. I pledge allegiance to my flag and to the republic for which it stands, one nation, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. Starting to sound a little more familiar, isn't it? Now you'll notice there's no under God to be seen there, as Bellamy was a firm believer in the separation of church and state although on the grounds that as a reverend he didn't want the state mucking about with his religion. He also created a special salute to accompany this pledge, which involved raising one's right arm straight out, hand flat, at a diagonal up in the air, and, um, yeah, you can see how after World War II that particular gesture became a little problematic. So, following the Second World War, that salute morphed into placing your hand over your heart. Apparently, in early drafts of the pledge, Bellamy strongly considered adding the slogan of the French Revolution, Liberté, Egalité, Fraternité, into his pledge, but, and I really can't confirm this in any primary source document, but it does make a good story, rumor had it that he dropped the idea because school leaders didn't want women and African Americans to get any funny ideas about equality. The quotation I could confirm from Bellamy's own account was that he felt, quote, fraternity was too remote of a realization, and equality was a dubious word. Unquote. Take that for what you will. Equality was not big on Bellamy's mind, though, when it came to diversity of conceptions of what America should be. Like Balch before him, he hoped that his pledge would serve as, and I quote, inoculation that would protect immigrants and native-born but insufficiently patriotic Americans from the virus of radicalism and subversion, unquote. His partner in this endeavor, Upham, had a very particular political agenda as well. He and his industrialist father were among those Americans feeling somewhat threatened by the growing power of organized labor, the growing influence of this newfangled idea called Marxism that was becoming all the rage across Europe, the growing idea that political party and even national identity should take a back seat to global solidarity and that sort of thing. Upham, as intellectual descendants of his today might put it, believed in, quote, America first, and by that a very particular vision of America. When I was a boy in the Little Red Schoolhouse, he wrote, we were brought up in the very atmosphere of patriotism. Are the children getting that culture now? No. 
We must start it up again. The flag will do it. I want to see that flag over every schoolhouse. What is more, I want the children to put it there themselves. I want them to raise the money to buy their flag. When we get that well started, we'll go further. We will get up a flag-raising exercise for the children to, to join in saying, what a great thing that will be. Think of it. A flag over every school to remind the children that they belong to the nation as well as to the town. Then the children every day uniting before the flag in patriotic exercises which will stir up their love of country. End quote. Now, do remember, this was all part of a scheme to make money selling flags, and make money it did. But as the pledge was designed to sell the idea of flags, the flags wound up selling the idea of the pledge as well. Bellamy and Upham's new pledge grew in popularity, especially after the 1923 National Flag Conference. Why was there a National Flag Conference in 1923, you might ask? Well, up until that point, the federal government had placed no particular regulations on the handling and use of American flags, having had, I don't know, maybe more important things to worry about. So 68 self-described patriotic organizations took it upon themselves to rectify that. Representatives from the American Legion, the Daughters of the American Revolution, the Boy Scouts, the Knights of Columbus, and oddly, the American Library Association, which is not a group I usually associate with ultra-loyalist nationalism. I mean, in my lifetime, they were the number one opponents of the USA Patriot Act's demands for access to Americans' library records after 9-11 but maybe they were different back then. Anyway, all these groups agreed upon a unified code for all things flag-related, and then President Warren G. Harding was there with them and got on board, and at the lightning speed of government, it only took Congress another 18 years to finally turn that into national law. But what's relevant to our story here is that at the National Flag Conference, the group also decided that the pledge should be changed from I pledge allegiance to my flag to I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States, so that immigrant children wouldn't get confused as to which flag they were pledging to. Then a year later, at the second conference, they changed United States to the United States of America, just to make sure no one confused it with, uh, I don't know, the United States of elsewhere? I mean, at the time, neither the United Arab Emirates nor the Federated States of Micronesia were a thing, so I'm not sure what exactly they were worried about, but anyway. Incidentally, Bellamy reportedly hated these changes because they disrupted the, quote, rhythmic balance of the original composition, unquote. Now, several other versions of the pledge were floating around at this time, including one that began, including one that began, I pledge my head, my hand, and my heart. But in 1942, Congress finally decided to step in and create an official standardized version of the pledge that is pretty much the exact version we have today, minus under God. That got added 12 years later. Groups like the Daughters of the American Revolution and the Knights of Columbus had been adding it for years by then anyway, and after some unsuccessful attempts to get Congress to add it, arguing in particular that Americans should have a public declaration that our country wasn't like those God-rejecting commies over there in Russia and China, Scottish Presbyterian minister and future friend of Martin Luther King, George McPherson Darty, finally pushed his representatives and President Eisenhower to embrace the idea. The phrase has its origins in President Lincoln's Gettysburg Address. You know, the last sentence where he says, that this nation, under God, shall have a new birth of freedom. Although historians think Lincoln intended under God in that context to mean God willing, as opposed to we are all subservient to God's authority, as it's usually interpreted in the pledge today. President Eisenhower certainly seemed to interpret it that way, as we can see in his speech to inaugurate the new pledge. Quote, From this day forward, the millions of our school children will daily proclaim in every city and town, every village and rural schoolhouse, the dedication of our nation and our people to the Almighty, in this way, we are reaffirming the transcendence of religious faith in America's heritage and future. 
In this way, we shall constantly strengthen those spiritual weapons which will forever be our country's most powerful resource, in peace or in war. End quote. So the pledge is a spiritual weapon, a declaration of loyalty to an admittedly very specific vision of American identity, assimilation to that identity, and a declaration of religious affiliation that was also, as we'll discuss, rather specific to a particular vision of Christianity. These are the pledge's origins. These ideas did not somehow covertly worm their way into schools because of the pledge. In many ways, they were a fundamental part of American schooling, since even before universal public education was a thing in the United States. One of the first, if not the first, law defining the purpose of American school came in the earliest days of the colonial period, in 1647, and it has what is probably the all-time best name for an act of legislation, the Old Deluder Satan Law. It was passed by my good old home state, then colony, of Massachusetts, and it required any town with more than 50 households to fund and operate a school, or at least a teacher, that would teach the Puritan version of Christianity. Why? Because otherwise, to quote the act, ye old deluder Satan would succeed in his goal to keep men from the knowledge of the scriptures, end quote. The New England Primer, central textbook of these schools, had such instructive examples for children as, quote, even whales in the sea, God's voice obey, unquote, and, quote, Xerxes the Great did die, and so must you and I, end quote. Mind you, there were some very graphic illustrations accompanying the text to drive these lessons into humility and obedience home. Assimilation to the culture and language of the privileged leadership class was also a part of schools from the beginning. Take this letter from Benjamin Franklin to his buddy Peter Collinson in 1753, when he laments how these grubby, untrustworthy immigrants, in this case immigrants from Germany, were threatening British culture. Franklin wrote, quote, Those who come hither are generally of the most ignorant, stupid sort of their own nation, and as few of the English understand the German language and so cannot address them either from the press or the pulpit, tis almost impossible to remove any prejudices they once entertained. Not being used to liberty, they know not how to make a modest use of it. End quote. Yeah, really worried about their prejudices there, Ben. Franklin worries that if there isn't some system of schooling to cement the idea of British culture and the supremacy of British culture, then, quote, all the advantages we have will not, in my opinion, be able to preserve our language, and even our government will become precarious, unquote. Horace Mann, often hailed as the father of contemporary public education, was a huge devotee of the Prussian model of obedience to authority and sought to ensure that schools operated under that structure. So, yes, all this to say that in many ways the pledge did nothing more than codify certain purposes and beliefs about schooling that were present from the outset. And from the outset, there have also been Americans who understood their country's essential identity as a place that enshrines dissent and independence, and felt that schools should promote, or at least leave alone, that concept of America. So you can imagine how the Pledge of Allegiance would look from their perspective, forcing people, especially small children who can't legally give consent, to repeat words and vow allegiance doesn't seem to fit with the idea of a country where everyone's free to think and do what they want. The largest opposition to the pledge, though, has traditionally focused on freedom of religion, even before those two little words were added in 1954, under God. In 1935, even before the pledge was ubiquitous in schools, J.F. Rutherford, president of the Jehovah's Witnesses Watchtower Society, led the charge against the Pledge of Allegiance in schools after a third-grade child who was a Jehovah's Witness refused to recite the Pledge of Allegiance in Lynn, Massachusetts, and was expelled for it. Rutherford argued, on behalf of all Jehovah's Witnesses, that members of the group could not and would not offer allegiance to an earthly emblem like a flag, as opposed to God, to whom he said their only allegiance lay. 
Rutherford was no stranger to defending his religious beliefs. He was actually jailed in 1918 for writing a book that, in promoting loyalty to God ahead of country, was deemed seditious by the authorities of the day. He was so opposed to reverence of physical icons and objects that, when he died, by his request, no headstone marked his grave. So, yeah, the guy walked the walk of his beliefs. When two Minersville, Pennsylvania Jehovah's Witnesses named Lillian and William Gobitis were expelled from their school for refusing to salute the flag, their family filed a lawsuit, and the case rose all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court, where Rutherford argued their case. In Mindersville v. Gobitis, the court decided 8-1 to one to uphold the mandatory flag salute, on the grounds that the Pledge of Allegiance helps, quote, to evoke that unifying element without which there can ultimately be no liberty, civil or religious. Exempting the Gobitis children would make others less loyal to their country. National unity is the basis of national security, unquote. The only dissenting judge, Justice Harlan Stone, wrote this, quote, The state seeks to coerce these children to express a sentiment which violates their deepest religious convictions. The very essence of liberty is the freedom of the individual from compulsion as to what he shall think and what he shall say, at least where the compulsion is to bear false witness to his religion, unquote. As it turns out, Stone's opinion would be the one that eventually won the day, but not before angry mobs nationwide took the Gavitis decision as leave to attack Jehovah's Witnesses all across the country. Over 1,500 Jehovah's Witnesses in 300 communities were physically attacked, and many were actually run out of their towns. One Southern sheriff told a reporter why witnesses were being run out. Quote, They're traitors. The Supreme Court says so, ain't you heard? Unquote. Three of the justices from the Gavitis case, by the way, Black, Douglas, and Murphy, eventually publicly expressed regret for their decision in the wake of these attacks. Only three years after the Gobitis decision, in West Virginia State Board of Education versus Barnett, the court took up the case of state authorities who were threatening to send the children of a Jehovah's Witness family to a reform school for the criminally active, and to prosecute their parents for causing juvenile delinquency, all because they maintained their refusal to have their children say the Pledge of Allegiance in school. In this case, the court ruled 6-3 to three to overturn Minersville versus Gobitis, upholding the right to free expression enshrined by the First Amendment as well as the Fourteenth Amendment's guarantee of due process. Justice Robert Jackson wrote for the majority, quote, If there is any fixed star in our constitutional constellation, it is that no official, high or petty, can prescribe what shall be orthodox in politics, nationalism, religion, or other matters of opinion, or force citizens to confess by word or act their faith therein, unquote. Now, the Barnett decision did not, interestingly enough, put an end to schools taking action against students who refused to stand, salute, or recite during the pledge. In the 1990s alone, the American Civil Liberties Union handled dozens of cases about the pledge around the country. As just one example, Fallbrook Union High School District of San Diego, California, 1998, where school officials told a dissenting student to stand for the pledge or else leave the classroom and face a detention if he declined to do either. In that case, the district wound up settling out of court and changing its policy. Ironically, though, it's that very freedom of dissent preserved by the Barnett decision that keeps the pledge in schools. Michael Newdow, an atheist from Elk Grove, California, filed suit in the early 2000s against his school district on the grounds that the under God phrase in the Pledge of Allegiance was in effect an endorsement of a particular religion, which is prohibited by the Establishment Clause of the First Amendment. While several lower courts agreed, when the case reached the Supreme Court in 2004, Elk Grove Unified School District versus Newdow, the court ruled that because the Barnett decision established that students had the right to refuse to say the pledge without fear of punishment, then everything was basically cool with having it. Still, in order to uphold the constitutionality of the pledge, the court basically had to resort to overturning the lower court rulings and the technicality that Newdow wasn't the custodial parent of a student at Elk Grove. 
And to this very day, court battles over the pledge's presence in schools continue, as does the pledge. The school where I taught for 20 years had its own rather tumultuous run-in with the Pledge of Allegiance, when on one of the anniversaries of the September 11th attacks, the vice principal, in what I think was an earnest effort to celebrate the diversity of the country we were all pledging allegiance to, and probably to push back a little against the anti-Muslim sentiment that 9-11 always brings up, read the poem, My Grandmother Washes Her Feet in the Sink of the Bathroom at Sears, by a Syrian-American poet named Mojakov during the morning announcements on the PA. Through a coincidence that strains belief, except I was there and can attest to it, the student who normally read the pledge over the morning announcements happened to be absent that day. And somebody dropped a dime to the conservative media world, which exploded overnight, with stories across the country decrying how this crazy, subversive, liberal Massachusetts high school replaced the Pledge of Allegiance with a, quote, Muslim poem, unquote, on 9-11. Now, leaving aside the extremely problematic characterization here, I mean, by that same standard, should we call I'm Dreaming of a White Christmas a Jewish poem because it was written by Irving Berlin, who was a Jew? Phone calls and emails and even bust-in demonstrators from far away flooded the town, leading to all manner of public apologies by school administrators and a stricter adherence to our, at the time, admittedly lax, and by that I mean once a week, recitation of the pledge. Nowadays, we do it daily. Regardless of its shaky legal standing, the Pledge of Allegiance and one's opinion of saying it in schools remains something of a litmus test for some Americans' standard of patriotism and other Americans' standard of free expression and protection of minority rights. And schools are at the epicenter of this one of many huge divisions in our hugely divided American culture. I will close with a certain bit of irony. Although a favorite tactic of the American right is to label those who oppose mandatory pledge recitation in schools as socialists, although what this has to do with economics is beyond me, the pledge's author, Francis Bellamy, was kicked out of the Baptist ministry for, wait for it, preaching that Jesus Christ, with his devotion to justice for the economically disadvantaged, was a socialist. That's all the time we have for now. Class dismissed, and we'll see you next time. I hope you enjoy listening to this podcast. If you did, please write us a review on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever it is you found us like us on our Facebook page. And if you really enjoy it, please consider visiting our website, www.ed-infinitum.com, and making a donation to keep it running. Otherwise, in the grand tradition of underfunded public schools, we'll be reliant on only what we can make from bake sales. The website is the place to go if you want to suggest a topic or send me an email for any other reason. Our theme music is Happy Schoolmaster by Mind Music ID. Thanks again for listening, and remember, every day brings us opportunities to learn something new. Still with us? Great. Then you get to hear today's education fun fact. According to the Campaign for High School Equity, a coalition of civil rights and educational organizations, if the 1.3 million students who dropped out from the class of 2010 had graduated, the United States today would be $337 billion richer in earnings. That might not sound like a fun fact, but it does speak to a lot of potential for good, or at least for making money, out there for educators to help students realize. Bye now.